Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. How are we today? Man, it's going to get better because we're starting a new series and it's on Leviticus and all God's people said, why? I know, um, <laughs> I get it. I've told a handful of people asking me coming after the Sabbath series, hey, Charlie, what's next? And I look at them and I say, we're going to do a series on Leviticus. And they look at me and say, no, for real. <laughs> I say, it's going to be Leviticus. And then they go, huh. <laughs> like they look at me like, do you not want job security? And I'm like, no, I think it's going to be really good. And as we talk about Leviticus, what we have to talk about is really why we're going to study this book. Because honestly, it's not one that churches do series on many times. It's not one that most small groups dive into. And it's because there are some verses in there, we'll put up a few, that are just kind of difficult. So one of the first ones, Leviticus 20, if anyone curses his father or mother... He must be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood guilt is on himself. And some parents are thinking, yes. And some parents are like, that's a little extreme. What about timeout? You know, I I, I get that and that's good. And it's one of the verses you look at and you read and you say, I'm having a hard time with the extent of that punishment for cursing mother and father. There's a couple more. Uh, Another one in Leviticus 19, uh, you shall not make any cuttings on your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo marks on any of you. I am the Lord, and all the people with sleeves are rolling down their sleeves right now on Sunday morning, you know? And you're thinking that doesn't really make sense in the world I live in. One of my favorites is Leviticus 19.19, you must not wear a garment made of two kinds of material. You read that with your cotton poly blend on this morning, and you're thinking, <laughs> how does this make sense to me? So when we do sermon series, we usually have a tagline that's a descriptor for where we're going to go. And so like we did a Proverbs series last year, and it was all about um, walking in wisdom. We did a series on new beginnings, and it was the call to keep growing. We did a series on Sabbath, and it was the discipline of rest. And so... During our Levitical conversations, as we're talking about how we're going to brand this thing, we had a couple failed attempts at taglines. And the first one is this, Leviticus, um, there's some weird stuff in there. (laughs) 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 We really, really liked that one as a staff, but we thought maybe that's sending the wrong message, right? So Leviticus, some people have hesitation towards because let's be honest, man, there is some weird stuff in there. Also, Leviticus is difficult because have you guys ever tried like the Bible in a year plan and everybody has failed the Bible in a year plan? Mostly because you get to the book of Leviticus, there's a uh, blog post called Stuff Christians Like. It's satire and they had an entire entry on Leviticus, the read through the Bible in a year widowmaker, right? And they say, I love this, they say so many people will choose to read through the Bible in a year. A lot of them will think it will be easy. That's dumb. Why? Leviticus. Genesis kind of woos you into stories. Oh, Adam and Eve, Joseph and his wicked awesome coat, all the stories. 
Then you head to Exodus, and you're feeling good. I've got this. This is like the crazy desert soap opera. There's a priest who just stabbed two people with a spear. This isn't a boring Bible. It's an action movie. Stallone would probably star in the original. He's pretty old, right? He goes on to say, then you get all cocky, and you feel like you have this Bible thing knocked out by May. What kind of a loser Christian needs a whole year? You're unstoppable. And then Leviticus. Suddenly the amazing stories are gone, and in their place, you know what you get? Detailed information on how to tell if a sore is infectious. <laughs> That's right, a detailed analysis on what color the hair in the sore will change, riveting. They are stuck in the Bermuda Triangle of Leviticus. You'll start to daydream about David and Goliath. If only you could get there, if only, right? It's this idea that it is not the most grab-you-by-the-shoulders text. And we live in a market economy that lives by supply and demand. And one of the reasons I know that Leviticus isn't necessarily highly demanded at Crossroads, we have a resource for everybody called Right Now Media. It's the YouTube for Jesus people, okay? Uh, so you can get on there and watch all these different talks from pastors that are amazing and teachers that are amazing. And you can do different Bible studies or do little kids Bible studies or do all these different studies. And, and you can search by book of the Bible amongst other things like topics. And, and if you do a search for, let's just say, John, you know how many results you get from that search, different studies? 445. That's a lot. That could take you a while to get through. So if you ever come to me and say, Charlie, there's nothing for my small group to study, I'm going to just send you a website, all right? Or let's take it Old Testament, a little less well-known. If you go to Right Now Media and type in Genesis, you're going to get about 70 results. That's a lot. That'll take you a while to get through. You know how many you get if you type in Leviticus? Four. And not one is actually just on Leviticus. They got a group in Exodus and Deuteronomy to keep your attention, you know? It's this idea that Leviticus is the place people go and the boredom overwhelms them. And so one of the other taglines is actually pretty popular in the few churches that do Leviticus sermon series are, you lost me at Leviticus, you know? Because by the time you get there in your Bible reading plan, you stop doing the Bible reading plan. So we're going to do Leviticus for the next, give or take, 10 weeks. Um, we're going to have a two-week break in the middle to kind of reset a bit because we just came out of three weeks on the Sabbath and then another eight to 10 on Leviticus. I don't want my next sermon series to be, I lost you to the village, you know, so we're going to break it up. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> we're going to break it up just a little bit because it can be a little dry, but it's really, really good. Um, and so finally, what I want to do today, it's, it's pretty short. I think today it's just a quick conversation. I think Leviticus is one of the books you have to set context for. There are certain books you can just pick up and run and go. That's why John's really good. If you don't know anything about Jesus or the God of the Bible, you read John and you get a really clear picture of how much he loves his people. You get a clear picture of Jesus and his wants and desires to heal the sick and to be there for the poor. You get a clear picture of a God who's making things better, who's reconciling. You read Leviticus, and that picture's harder to see. You really have to have context when it comes to Leviticus. So what I want to do this morning, really simply, before we get into our first week in Leviticus alone, I want to talk to you today about why I think it's good for us as a people. I want to talk about why I think it'll be a good series for us. My whole goal today is to move us from Leviticus, eh, 
to Leviticus, eh, you know, I, mean, I, wanna, I wanna see us grow in our big picture desire for this book so we can see Jesus in it because that's what the point of the scriptures are. And so we're gonna go through this morning three objections I hear about Leviticus And then what I want to do is flip those upside down and say, I've heard this about why we don't need to study it, but I think this is actually the truth. And as we walk through those, hopefully our affections for this book that, let's be honest, most of us haven't read yet, um, hopefully they'll grow. But before we do that, at Crossroads, every Sunday morning, we have two goals. We want to know God. That means we open the scripture, even the parts that we normally don't open to, because it tells the story of God as we see him in the Bible. We get to know his character. We get to see what he loves and what he hates. And as we grow in our knowledge for God, the reason we show up, the reason we open the Bible, the reason we study, the reason we have right now media, the reason we do these things is not just to know some answers about God to impress our friends. The reason we do it is because as we know God more, his influence in our world, in our lives grows. And so we want to know God. And secondly, we want to experience God this morning as our knowledge builds and leads to um, increased influence. And so what that means this morning is that you got to do some work just like me. As we sit and read the scripture together, you get to ask what God is doing in your soul this morning, how he's shaping you. Now, the active word of God, because God is active, is showing you deeper who he is so that his influence might build in your life. That's our goal this morning. So we're going to take a couple minutes before we dive in and just say some prayers. I'm going to pray for us. If you're comfortable, I'll ask that you just silently ask God to do something in your spirit this morning um, and pray for me as we talk about Leviticus. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we get to gather together on another Sunday and open your scripture. There is no better reason to get together, um, and it's a win all in and of itself. I pray this morning as we talk about the book of Leviticus that you grow our, just our joy for all of the scripture. Um, That we can see you clearly in the big picture of what you're doing through the people in the Old Testament, specifically one book of it. And I just pray that you this morning shape our spirit to look more like Jesus so that your influence might grow because we need it. Because you're a God who reconciles the broken, which we all are. So if you're comfortable, I'd ask that you take just a couple seconds and ask God to do a work in your spirit this morning because he will. And ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job painting the picture of the character of God that we see displayed throughout a book that's kind of harder to see God sometimes, um, that we might, that I might do a good job accurately representing the God who reconciles his people. all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. We're in it together. So we're going to talk about a couple different reasons why I think Leviticus is overlooked and three specifically. And like I said, I want to take each of these and kind of, kind of spend some time on them and say, we think this, but, but maybe this is the thing that we don't see. Cause when we study Leviticus, it's kind of all about seeing the things that aren't easily seen by us from our context in America in 2020. And so by and large, the number one objection that I hear to studying the book of, or even reading the book of Leviticus, the number one objection I hear is Leviticus is boring. 
all right? Just, it's straight out, not a fun read for me. Let me read you a bit. The first seven verses in chapter two, right off the bat, it's going to grab you. You ready? You guys know what's coming. When a person presents a grain offering to the Lord, his offering must consist of choice wheat flour, and he must pour olive oil on it and frankincense on it. Then he must bring it to the sons of Aaron. The priests of the priest must scoop out from there a handful of its choice wheat flour, some of its olive oil, in addition to all of its frankincense. And the priest must offer its memorial portion up to smoke on the altar. It is a gift of soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is most holy from the gifts of the Lord. When you present an offering of grain baked in an oven, it must be made of choice wheat flour, baked into unleavened loaves, mixed with olive oil or unleavened wafers, smeared with olive oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it must be choice wheat flour mixed with olive oil unleavened. Crumble it in pieces and pour olive oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, it must be made of choice wheat flour, deep fried in olive oil. That just grabs you, right? You're like, is this the Bible or the pioneer woman? It, it is. <laughs> It is hard to translate things like that to our everyday experience. And so here's one thing I will tell you straight off the bat. If you say the, the book of Leviticus is boring, I'm going to say if you read Genesis before it and numbers after it, yeah, it doesn't have the same level of tension, okay? I'm going to sit here and not lie to you and say that that doesn't seemingly grab you from the get-go. But here's the deal. I think just because it doesn't grab us doesn't mean that it doesn't have a beautiful purpose in shaping us in the ways of Jesus. Leviticus is the minivan of the books of the Bible. It might not be fast or fun, but it's got a job to do, everybody. All right? And some of you are thinking minivans are a lot of fun. You already like Leviticus. I'm not, I'm not even trying to. I'm not even talking to you this morning. You're good. But really... What you have to understand is what Leviticus is and what it does. There's a rhythm to the book of Leviticus. I think we have a picture of kind of how the book is laid out. Um, there's three different categories it talks about, and it does it in repeating patterns. So the first seven chapters is all about rituals. It's offerings. The first seven chapters are the different offerings of the Jewish people to God. Uh, the, the next couple chapters, all about the priesthood, then follow that by the purity codes, and then that's repeated in reverse order. Then 18 through 20 is purity, followed by priesthood, and followed by ritual. So it's this kind of systematic look at how God wants them to fundamentally live in the context of worship. Because Leviticus comes after the kind of happening moments of Exodus, and the way that it begins tells us why it's there in the first place. And if we don't understand why it's there, we miss the importance of it. So in Leviticus 1.1, it starts like this. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the meeting tent. Those are really important words there. So if you know the biblical story, you'll know that God pulled these people out of Egypt and he said, I'm going to rescue you because I promised to somebody you've never met but that you're related to hundreds of years ago that I would. Then you waited and you waited and you waited and I finally showed up in my time and I brought rescue to your people because I want, I want to be with my people. I want to be present with my creation. But the problem was the people of God sin. The problem was the people of God are unlike God. And so one of the rhythms in the book of Leviticus is cleanliness and uncleanliness, good and bad, life and death. And so God picked out his people and he made an agreement with them. 
He said, I'm going to save you, but I want you to flourish in the middle of that salvation and redemption. So I'm going to be your, I'm going to be your God. You don't have a say in that. <laughs> and you're going to be my people. And that's good for you, right? And he gives Moses these laws on the top of Mount Sinai. And Moses and Charlton Heston were up there together. And God said, this, this is what I want you to tell my people. And, and I don't know if you guys know the story, but before the ink was dry on the Ten Commandments, the people revolted against God. The God that just brought him out of Egypt. The whole 10 plagues thing. Each plague represented an Egyptian God that our God struck down. And then he parted the Red Sea and they crossed on dry ground. And then he wiped out the most powerful army in the history of the world in the Egyptian army. He did all that. And 40 days later, they get to this mountain, they're bored. And they say, we got to worship something. And literally in Exodus 32, he says to Moses, as he's giving them the laws, he's saying, I'm going to be your God. He says, go quickly descend. Because your people whom you've brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They've quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and they've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. (laughs) See, the problem that they experienced was God wanted to be present with his people. But we, and this is the story of the Bible, we have a presence problem with the God that created us. He said, when we sin, when injustice comes into the world because we choose not God, when that happens, God can't dwell with his people anymore because he is perfect. And so he rescued a people. He made a people. He said, I'm going to be your God. And as quickly as he said it, they broke it. And so the beginning of the book of Leviticus starts by God saying, from the tent of meeting where his presence dwelled, he says, from the tent and called outside of the tent to Moses, let me tell you about how you're going to act and live so that we might be present together again. And the entire book of Leviticus talks about God reconciling their sins so that he might be present with his people. It's him laying out a way. And he says, this is how you're going to live. This is how you're going to give me offerings. This is how you're going to be pure and clean because ultimately it's going to point to something, but your sin got in the way. So we have 27, eight chapters of text that seems mundane and boring, all about how God can be present with his people again. And then in Numbers 1-1, right after Leviticus, do you know how that text starts? Now the Lord spoke to Moses, not from, but in the tent of meeting. The whole purpose of Leviticus is that God might be present with his people again. It's this ideal shift between not a boring text, but it's when the boring becomes beautiful. With every mundane law, they see the faithfulness of God. With every mundane announcement or every mundane offering, every time they have to wash their hands or wash their bodies or wash their kids or wash their livestock, every time that happens, it's about them remembering that God is persistently trying to be present with them. And yeah, man, it it might not be the most riveting stuff, but sometimes the most boring, mundane stuff is really beautiful if you can see it. Valentine's Day is this week. You're welcome if you didn't know. Valentine's Day is this week, and um, one of my old bosses and mentors, um, he always said, and I love this, because we talk about Valentine's Day, and, and he was big on my camp, which is it's a made-up holiday that we don't celebrate. And if you celebrate it, I think that's good. But I try and tell my wife that every day with Chuck is Valentine's Day. It doesn't go well most days. Um, but I loved how he talked about romance. He said, you know, if your idea of romance is big gestures of affection, if it's flowers all the time, and if it's, you know, I'm jumping out of a hot air balloon with a sign or a post or something, right? If it's these big grand gestures, I'm not your guy. But if romance, if romance is showing up every day, is is living faithfully, is loving you with all I got that very day, then I'm the most romantic guy you know. 
and I love that. Because what he did there in our culture that oftentimes only sees headlines and only sees the big and the extreme, he said that there is beauty in, some, in what some people would see as boring. And we need that. Leviticus is the beautifulness in what seemingly is the boringness of the law. It's a story of God trying to be present with his people. And here's why it's needed. And here's why it's so rhythmic. And here's why they needed to fall into these rhythms and rituals is because so easily, so easily, and this is the story of the Old Testament, so easily they forgot that God was good. So we just talked about the story a little bit, but God saved them from the most powerful army in the world. Two of my favorite lines in the scriptures of God saving Israel are when Pharaoh finally decided to let Israel go. They didn't just like walk out and sneak out in the middle of the night. It wasn't like Pharaoh said, I'm going to count to 10 and you better be gone. The story literally is that Israel plundered the Egyptian people, meaning they took their stuff and their spoils and their riches. They plundered them. It's an adverbial phrase that shows the extent of which God delivers. And then another one comes when they're actually crossing the Jordan, so, or the, the, the Red Sea. They get there and Pharaoh changes his mind and he's coming after them with everything they have. And, and this God that just delivered his people, his people look at and say to Moses, they literally say, did you bring us out here to die? Didn't we tell you it would have been better if we just stayed there? Like, I just did something. And you're reading that thinking, how can they so quickly forget? And I'd say, we do it all the time. All the time. And so Moses says, watch this. And he raises his staff over the waters. And they walk, and this is my second favorite phrase, they walk on dry ground. Not wet, marshy ground. It was covered in water. They walk on dry ground to the place where God saved them and delivered them ultimately from the Egyptians. Why? It seemingly is boring. It's this rhythmic process of remembering that God is faithful to them and wants to dwell with them. So when people look at me and say, Leviticus is boring, I'm going to acknowledge that there's not a lot of tension in this narrative, but I'm also going to say, look at it in a different way, because if you see it in a different lens, it becomes crystal clear that it's not boring, but really beautiful. So Leviticus isn't boring. It's a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God and his desire to be present with his people. And I love that. I need reminders of that. I need the mundane rhythms that tell me the stories I know to be true because it's so easy to believe the ones that aren't. So the first thing I hear is that Leviticus is boring. The second I hear is that Leviticus, this is probably a little more popular, Leviticus doesn't apply to me. Have you guys heard that one before? I know I have. I'm not a Jew, and I'm not walking through the wilderness. Um, I'm not being led by fire and, and clouds day and night. This is a book that fundamentally isn't for me because we don't live out our faith like this anymore. And, and we don't. If you come in here and try to set some kind of live animal on fire, I'm going to have you escorted out, all right? Just know, know that. Um, but here's the thing, and, and let me get to the obvious, and then we'll go into the more nuanced. Uh, the first thing is that when Scripture talks about Scripture, it says it from a positive point of view. So Psalm 1, the writer says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. When the psalmist is writing that, and he talked about Psalm 119, when the psalmist is writing that, David is specifically speaking to the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible. He's saying, these books I delight in, and I meditate on them day and night. Paul says in Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He says that, hey, the law had its place, but I delight in the law of God that he gave his people. An often quoted verse about the benefit of all scripture is 2 Timothy. You probably know this one. Every scripture is inspired or breathed by God, and it's useful for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training. 
It says that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped of every good work. The first thing we have to acknowledge, fundamentally, is that all scripture is inspired by God, so all scripture is for us to know about who God is. Not just the red letters, you know, but all of it. It's about understanding that God is good and seeing who he is. The problem with Leviticus and why it's difficult and why people say that it's not for me is because they're right. It wasn't written to us. It was written for us. And there's a difference. We have a problem of context with Leviticus. One of my least favorite things that people do is rip Bible stuff right out of context to make God look like something he isn't. You know, it's just not fair. I don't want people to do that to me. And so um, I've seen this happen more than any other book in the Bible. I don't know if you've had experience with this, but people will pop up that don't like God and thinks God is cruel or unjust or fill in the blank there because of their personal experience. And they'll quote a verse from Leviticus and say, how can this God be good? Because there's some verses in there that are really difficult, that, that are really hard to understand for us. And we're not going to read them because they're definitely not flower mound family fun appropriate on a Sunday morning. Um, but there are some that are really difficult. And so I want to say, before we go any farther, is that when we read Leviticus, we have to understand the context that it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us, meaning we've got to do some work when we go to the scriptures. One of my favorite phrases is that text without context is a pretext for proof texts. Let me break that down a little bit. That just means that if you're going to pull any verse outside of its context, it is giving you permission to prove the point you want to make in the first place, you know? Context is key and it matters. And so all of us need to do that, especially when it comes to Leviticus. One writer said it like this, ripping a Bible verse out of context to prove a point. It allows a soldier who wields it to destroy his or her enemy with a single verse while claiming the impenetrable high ground of clear biblical authority. So we have to understand that when it comes to Leviticus, there, there is more work that we need to do than if we open to John. It's just a harder read for us because it was written to some people a long time ago. And while it might not be a one-to-one relationship, what we see when we look at how God told his people to live, what we see are the practices and principles that are good. Studying the Bible is more about a person than, than the, the laws in the first place. And we have to know the principles and practices to know about the person of who God is. That's why one commentator I love says the context of every verse is 66 books because we put it into the narrative of what God is doing. George McDonald, a pastor and writer, said, the Bible to me is the most precious thing in the world just because it tells me the story of Jesus. And so when we see Leviticus in the right context, we see a couple things. One is we see the character of God in a deeper way than probably we wouldn't before. We see that literally the laws that God gives reflects the lawmaker, even if they're not laws for us anymore, right? So we quoted a couple verses at the beginning of this. We quoted the tattoo verse, and we quoted the verse about you shouldn't wear different kinds of clothing. And a buddy of mine, actually when I first got to Crossroads, he was a leader, and he was in college, and um, he was dating this girl. And the girl's mom was a Jesus follower, uh, but she didn't quite understand yet the context of Leviticus. And so she had some hangups and really tried to live in a way that reflected Leviticus, and and he had um, an earring. So that verse when it says, don't mark your body, he went out and met this girl's mom for the first time. And, and she quoted Leviticus 19 to him and said, how can you have an earring? He looked at this woman that he was dating his daughter that he'd never met until now. And he said, how's that polycotton blend working out for you? Good idea? You know, because of the next verse. First of all, awesome move. Second of all, terrible move. Third- <laughs> <laughs> I have all the feels. Third of all, 
If you dive a little deeper, you understand why God writes that. So you're going to look at that, pull it out of context and say, this is terrible and God's legalistic. Instead, understanding that the point of those laws when it comes to the purity of God's people is about looking different than the people around you. And when he says don't get tattoos, it's because in that world, you got markings on your body to reflect the God that you worshiped. And God's saying, don't even do that because I'm so different from all those other gods. So the principle there is the divine authority of our God. And then he says, hey, with the clothing thing, one, it's about knowing that the only people that can wear woven fabrics in Exodus is the priests. So you're not like them if you're an ordinary person and there's a distinguishment in how we worship God together. It's about biblical authority and the goodness of God. And so is that applicable for us today? No, but is the principle applicable for us as we study the character of God? Absolutely. That's why we say Leviticus is descriptive, not prescriptive, because the laws reflect the lawgiver. I have a friend of mine who is talking about just different um, laws in his house, if you will, uh, different rules that he's trying to establish with his family. And this kind of comes off the Sabbath series we were talking about a little bit. And he said, you know, one of the things that he's trying to do is institute a new rule in his household. And just for his household, but a rule in his household. And it goes something like uh, scripture before screens. And what he means by that is literally um, the first thing I want to look at when I wake up in the morning is my phone. It's not the TV. It's not the market. It's not the news. He says, I want to get up in the morning. And before I turn on a phone or read some news, I want to get into the word because it centers me. And so he said, some days I can do it right off the bat. And and some days the kid's crying and I got to feed him. I got to unload the dishwasher. And it's an hour before I can look at my phone or check an email or, or respond to people via text because I haven't gone to the scriptures first. And for him, that's not a rule for all of us, but for him that reflects the value of the scripture and the role of his family's rhythms. It's good. And so what the law does is it reflects the lawgiver. And most of the law that he's given when it comes to purity laws in Leviticus is about God saying, I am so different than all the other gods around you. Know that. I'm so different than all the other um, forces that that people tell you to believe in around you. And so we're gonna have a whole week on studying why God says he's different, the law of being different, what that means, and what we can glean from those verses. I think the second thing you see is the patterns and principles of God that leads to the flourishing of his people when you look at Leviticus in the right context or lens. We We just did that with Sabbath. We looked at it and said, this paints a picture of something bigger, better, and beautiful that God wove into his creation. You see it with the purity rituals and how God values life over death. You see it all throughout the book of Leviticus. And in the middle of those three things, if you remember the graph, in the middle of those three things were two chapters in 17 and 18. And and what it does is it lays out something called the Day of Atonement, the ultimate worship experience for the Jewish person. So what Leviticus does is fundamentally it paints the picture to the ultimate reason why we can walk in the presence of God, and that's Jesus. It reminds me of um, this story, this really cheesy church story that I don't know why it makes me laugh, but it does, and I think I've shared it before. But there's a seven-year-old boy. He's in Sunday school on a Sunday morning, and the Sunday teacher, the teacher says, hey guys, I have a question for you. What's brown and small and has a fluffy tail? And the seven-year-old raises his hand and says, it really sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus, you know? And, and, and here's the thing, literally, that, that's what I'd say about Leviticus. You might not understand how it paints the picture of Jesus, but it does. So we might not get it yet because we've got to do some work and look at some context, but the story of Leviticus is the story of Jesus. Leviticus is for us because it tells us about the story of God fulfilled in Jesus so that we might walk in the presence of God because it's the purpose of the book for the Jewish people. And that's beautiful. 
that we see all these things fulfilled in Jesus. And why I think it's really beautiful is because fundamentally it gives me confidence in the God that I follow. I need to know that God didn't respond to my sin or to injustice or to my Sunday out of a not knowingness. I need to know that God didn't just respond, but he created this way that we might fix or rectify the injustice in the world that I can't mess up. I need confidence that God thought this thing through well beforehand and I can't derail his plan. And when we read the book of Leviticus, it gives me confidence to know that God thought about all the ways this could go and he still wins in the end. It gives me confidence in his plan. Like, oh yeah, God, God wasn't surprised by my sinful Saturday, you know? God wasn't surprised by a shooting. God wasn't surprised by a flood. God wasn't surprised by any injustice we might encounter. God made a plan to rectify it. And as we see the threads of Jesus in the book of Leviticus, what we begin to do is build confidence in a God who knows, whose plan is bigger than the injustices we might face. So Leviticus isn't, um, it is applicable for us because it tells us of the story of God fulfilled in Jesus. Finally, the biggest one I hear from church people. So the first one is kind of just from people that are starting out. The second one is from probably non-church people uh, that don't like God to begin with. And the third one is really just from church people, from people like us that are grace-based. Is you're going to look at me and say, well, Charlie, Leviticus is all about legalism. Leviticus is legalistic. It's about law, and we are free from the law. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, we're free from the law, right? We're absolutely, through Jesus, free from the law of the Old Testament um, practices of temple or all those things that the Leviticus talks about. But what you got to understand, to the Jewish person, Leviticus wasn't legalistic. It was life-giving. Because if you understand the order of how and when the law is given, it reframes our perception of what the law is. So God saved Abraham in Genesis 12. And if you get the big picture of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11 talks about all of us, you and me and everybody included. And, and then he, he, he kind of picks a person. He picks a person, God does, and says, okay, now my plan will move from the general to the specific. I will start with these people. And through these people, through these people, I will bring about ultimate redemption. That's what he talks about in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. That through Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. Why did he pick Abraham? Because he did, is the only answer to that. Because God is gracious and good. And so he said, Abraham, now that I've picked you, I'm going to need you to do something. All your people are going to be known um, by that they follow me, and especially the young men, by being circumcised. So he says, I have picked you, and this will follow. And then you follow the biblical story, and what you begin to see one by one is that when God gives laws, it's not to earn or merit grace. He gives laws after he's already saved, picked, chosen, or redeemed. So when we come to the story of Leviticus, you got to understand it happens after Exodus 14, 15, and 16, not before. Those are fundamentally different truths. One writer says it like this, God did not send Moses to Israel with a new method of forging a relationship, one that would set aside the grace of God's promises to Abraham, a plan that said, in effect, if you keep the law, I'll save you. It is precisely the other way around. Obedience flows from grace. It doesn't buy it. The exodus precedes Sinai. Far from setting aside the promises of grace, the law was given to those who had been saved by grace in order to show them how to live in that grace. Thus, Sinai does not bring a fresh bondage, but rather proof that the old bondage had been broken. In fact, we can speak of the law as a further act of grace, a gift of God's people, a gift to God's people that serves his covenant and gracious purposes. 
Thus the call of the law is to translate God's grace into action. That's why the longest psalm in the Bible is all about delighting in the law because they saw it as God's grace, not God's requirement for getting his grace. That's why it's grace in the first place. So if we then look at Leviticus in context, we don't see do this so that I might save you. We see I already saved you. So the outworking of my redemption is obedience. It's a grace-based way to look at loss. And let me tell you something. That's exactly what Jesus said too when he said, come and follow me. So if we talk about ways to live and things to do and ways to love and how not to hate or be jealous or steal or whatever you want to talk about in the New Testament, when God talks about behavior, it doesn't. It's not a precursor for the grace of God. It follows God's grace so that people might see that God is gracious. We have to see Leviticus not as a way to get into God's good graces, but as a reminder of his graces already given out. There's a book that's really good. Um, It's called Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. And Christopher Wright says it this way, ethics then become a matter of response and gratitude within a personal relationship, not a blind obedience to rules or adherence to timeless principles. So in Exodus, we're going to end with um, a couple long-form readings just to remind us that this book is all about grace because it's so easy to get wrapped up in the fact that it's not. In Exodus 6, God calls his people and he says this, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out of your enslavement to the Egyptians. I will rescue you from the hard labor they impose and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you to myself as a people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of enslavement from the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give you it as a possession. I am the Lord. Translate that to New Testament. He says this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your offenses and sins in which you formerly lived according to this world, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the spirit that's now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us formerly lived in our flesh and of the mind, and we were nature of children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us. Even though we were dead in his offenses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace you're saved. He raised us together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ to demonstrate in coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness towards us through Jesus. It is not, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not from works so that no man can boast, but we are his creative work having been created in Christ Jesus for the good works that God prepared beforehand so that we could do them. So when we talk about Leviticus, (laughs) it's a beautiful story of God's presence with his people. It's one that applies to us because it tells us about the God that we follow. And fundamentally, it's a story of grace that points to Jesus. As we get to dive in and know the grace of God, then we're known for how much God is gracious and people see it. So Leviticus, our tagline, now that we're going to land the plane, is to know and be known. That as we study a book, that was written to a specific set of people, we see the heart of a God who wants to be present with his people still today. We see God that graciously saved. And as we know that God, might we be known for the grace for which God gave us? Might we show people that grace changes lives and communities and churches because God is good and he's redeemed his people and he's present with them. It's the story of Leviticus. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful 
for Leviticus. <laughs> I'm thankful that we can dive down and see some context and see a beautiful, maybe a little boring picture of how you saved. I pray that as we open up the book and, and look at it week by week and look at different themes that you established that we never forget, that it's because you saved us that we live into your rhythms, not the other way around. So as we continue in worship, might we remember you're worthy of it because you redeemed. Might we remember that you love us, <laughs> so you drew near. And might we continue to grow in understanding of both that love and your presence in our world and in our lives. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.